Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Second Chronicles chapter 32. Tonight we study verses 24 to 33. Second Chronicles chapter 32, beginning at verse 24. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine and oil, stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself, and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet on of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And so in the manner of the matter of the envoys of the prince of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place." May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray now for you to bless us and to help us to understand not only what the text says, but what it means to us. Cause us, Lord, to see our need for the Savior only you can give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the eyes of the chronicler, the author of 1 and 2 Chronicles, Hezekiah was a model king. He reigned over Judah at the perilous end of the 8th century B.C. And Hezekiah's faith had guided the people through one of their most dangerous passages. Uh, Trusting in God's word, and he was aided in this by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah Hezekiah had not fallen prey to the idol idol worship that had been so widely spread by his father, King Ahaz. He had not succumbed to fear when the Assyrian host besieged his city to destroy him. In fact, it was Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord that summoned the angel that slew the enemy host. And yet, great man as he clearly is, he was, like all other men and women, still a sinner. And the particular sin to which Hezekiah succumbed is what seems to be the special province of those who have obeyed God's word. And gained the victory. Oh, there's other people who are subject to this sin, but it seems among believers to be those who have been successful. It is a sin of pride. Now, we might at first 
be tempted to think of pride as only a small sin. It's really nothing compared with serious matters like adultery or murder. But C.S. Lewis, in his memorable book, Mere Christianity, reminds us the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, he says, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. Pride, he says, is the anti-God state of mind. Well, Second Chronicles 32, 24 to 33, concludes the record of the great and godly king Hezekiah by telling how, having received a special message of God's grace, he succumbed to the sin of pride. And then in a rare example of extraordinary character, when Hezekiah was confronted and threatened by God for this with judgment, he repented and humbled himself before the Lord. Michael Wilcock writes, to depict him as a superman would be the exact opposite of the chronicler's intention. Hezekiah is a fallible human being and his very failures encourage us. Well, they encourage us because he repented of his pride and humility. It reminds us that we too can repent of our sin and be restored to God's blessing. Now, the event for which Hezekiah is most famous is his prayerful defense against Sennacherib when Jerusalem was besieged. Uh, we saw that in the previous chapter, 701 BC. If you remember, that's a year you're supposed to know. But his second most famous event involved his miraculous healing from a life-threatening disease. The chronicler puts it this way very briefly in verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and was at the point of death. Now this statement, in those days, indicates that Hezekiah's illness occurred not after the Assyrian invasion. We might think so because it's in the chapter after it. But no, it was during the Assyrian uh, invasion. In fact, a parallel passage in 2 Kings 20, verses 5 to 6, indicates that his success even occurred during the military, his, his, his sickness occurred during the military campaign. And I say that because the prophet Isaiah, when God answers Hezekiah's prayer, promises him the combination of healing and God's defense of the city. And so it occurred while the enemy was coming. Moreover, it seems likely that Hezekiah's illness was the result of God's judgment on his sin. Now you want to be careful. Sickness by no means is always God's judgment. If you have a deadly diagnosis and you say, what did I do wrong? You were born into the human race. You live in this world. It's shadowed by death. There's no reason to think biblically that if something bad has happened to you that necessarily God is punishing you. My rule of thumb is if you are being chastised by God for a sin, you know what the sin is. Chastisement is not the kind that we go, I really don't know what I'm being chastised for. No, when you're being chastised by God, you do know what it is for. Now, we don't know what this was for, but we can assume that Hezekiah did. Now, we can be sure of this because the prophet Micah, who was a contemporary of both Isaiah and Hezekiah, threatened judgment on Jerusalem's leaders. Now, here we're told, I think this is the best clue, Micah 3.12, the passage we looked at this morning, that in that passage, the threatened judgment of God is directed towards the sins of social injustice and the exploitation of the poor by the elites of Jerusalem. Now, you may think that's surprising. 
for Hezekiah to be involved in that, given his record of godly integrity. And the account of his reign began with a courageous reform of the temple establishment. He made arrangements, particularly for the teaching of God's word throughout the nation. How then was Hezekiah guilty of charges of corruption, the same things that were leveled against the, the more wicked kings in the book of Chronicles? I think maybe the best answer is that for all that he had done so far, he had not tackled this problem within his reign. It's not so much that he was exploiting the weak, that he was shedding innocent blood, but he was still permitting it among the wealthy and the powerful. And in any case, for these sins, Micah 3.12 warns of judgment, therefore because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Now this passage, this statement in Micah 3.12 in the time of Hezekiah plays an important role over 100 years later or about 100 years later when the prophet Isaiah is about to be sentenced to death for threatening God's judgment on Jerusalem. And if you remember, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, some elders of the, of the people came forward and pointed out that Jeremiah should not be condemned for threatening judgment on the nation because Micah in the time of Hezekiah had threatened likewise. Now what's particularly noteworthy is according to Jeremiah 26, 19, when that warning was given, Hezekiah repented of those sins. He responded to what was prophetically shown to him that he needed to change and he led the people in that so that God relented of his judgment. Now that evidence from Micah 3.12 and the explanation in Jeremiah 26.19 suggests that Hezekiah's deadly sickness not only occurred during the war against Assyria, but it was God's judgment. In fact, it's likely that the invasion itself was God's punishment for the corruption and the social exploitation by the elites of Jerusalem. Well, it fell to the prophet Isaiah to deliver the bad news to Hezekiah. He had taken sick, and God sent Isaiah to tell him these words. I'm reading now from Isaiah 38, verse 1. Second Chronicles clearly intends, and he does this from time to time, he makes a brief reference to an event that he assumes we have read the longer version of it. It's very interesting. So let me read what Isaiah says. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah said to him, set your house in order for you shall die and you shall not recover. That's what the prophet said. The chronicler says he became sick, was at the point of death. But here we find out that Isaiah is the one who broke him the news. Now that may seem abrupt. You may say, well, Isaiah has not got a very good bedside manner. I would quarrel with that. I think in fact we see two important elements of a godly ministry to those who were dying. First of all, he needed to be told. Hezekiah needed to know that he soon was dying. We may presume that he was fairly ill. It may have been the kind of fever, that kind of thing, that so often in the ancient world would lead to death. He never knew. But here he's told, no, he is going to die. I will say my own experience as a pastor has taught me that Christians who are going to die, that's the diagnosis, and it's a, a clear one, they generally prefer to know the truth of their condition. And it's amazing how often virtually no one will tell them. The doctors kind of beat around the bush. Frankly, it often falls to the pastor. And it does fall to the pastor to sit down and say, look, I've talked to the doctors. I've talked to your family. What this means is that you are about to die. Now, that is an important thing for them to know. Let me say this, that death 
is a passage that we all face and it requires its own particular piety. It would be better for us if we are going to die that we would know that we would die. It's one thing to be fighting for your life and to be praying in that way. It is quite another to be preparing to yield your soul into God's hands. In many cases, believers who know they are dying experience peace and blessing. One of the challenges of being a pastor is you often are the one who tells someone that they are going to die. One of the blessings is you often are there to experience the peace of their soul as they think they turn their hearts. They're no longer striving for the things of life. They're thinking of heaven. They're looking forward to the day when, as Jesus said, I will come, he said, and I will take you to myself. Isaiah needed to tell him, and he did. Now, secondly, the advice he gave to Hezekiah is very valuable. He said, set your house in order. Isaiah 38.1. That is extremely good advice. If you should gain a diagnosis, sometimes a Christian will be told, you have four months to live, you have six months to live. There may be some variance, but there are times when Christians know I have a certain amount of time and then I'm going to leave this life. Well, that is the time to set our house in order. Perhaps there are debts that you have and they need to be paid. I find often there are relationships that need to be reconciled. Maybe you sinned against someone and they're still hurting from that. Wouldn't it be the time if you are going to leave this world for you to go to them and say, I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? I acknowledge that what I did was was sinful and I hurt you. I would ask you to to forgive me. It will make a very great difference to them after you die, whether or not you made that kind of reconciliation. In many cases, it, it is a time to bear testimony of faith in Jesus to unbelieving friends and families. I often point out to people in this condition that there is a particular quality to a dying testimony. Everyone has to deal with death. Everyone thinks about death. We try not to, but the thoughts creep in, and when someone we know is going to die, it it is a powerful testimony to tell of the confidence we have of forgiveness and eternal life with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Setting our house in order involves that. In some cases, it means making arrangements through a will for your wealth, to, on the one hand, to provide for your family, but then also to be a blessing to the work of the church or to another Christian organization that you would leave uh, financially an ongoing legacy that would be spreading the gospel. It is good to leave instructions for your funeral and your memorial services. Often I have advised people, and sometimes they have done it, it's a particular blessing if they have the time and the clarity of mind to make a particular parting message. Maybe it's a letter. Maybe it's a meeting that they will have individually with each child, with other people who are very important with them, to express your love and the things you have valued and the blessing they have been to you. Now let me say this. This is very good advice. Isaiah gives to Hezekiah. Set your house in order, for you are about to die. But you know what? We don't know when we're going to die. You and I might die tomorrow. In fact, what is good advice, the very kinds of things I was talking about that we ought to do before we die, we need to do now. When there's an urgency to all of these things, oh, we realize it, perhaps, when death is looking us in the face, but we may die at any time. We should set our house in order now. 
Now, the chronicler, again, gives an abbreviated version of this, including Hezekiah's response to the news that is brought to him by the prophet. He simply says in verse 24, he prayed to the Lord. I'm quite sure that the prophet intends for us to know the fuller descriptions in 2 Kings 20 and especially Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38, 2 to 3 puts it this way, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, what a human depiction that is of a, of a great man. One of the problems with someone being a great man is no one thinks he's actually a man anymore. And Hezekiah is told by the prophet Isaiah, you are not going to recover. You soon are going to die. He turns to the wall. He prays to God for, for deliverance, and he begins weeping. And many people are critical of Hezekiah for this. I think rather we should be sympathetic. We should be sympathetic. Phil Riken says he was in a dark place. He was desperate for the cure that could save his life. He cried out for God to save him. And yes, he began weeping. Now, some people look at the prayer that he offered and accuse him of legalism. Again, he says, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a full heart. And and people would say he didn't even understand what the gospel is. He's claiming works. He's claiming merit. He's claimed to have earned a God to deliver him from death. I, I think that is not a fair reading. I think Darrell Ralph Davis is right when he says, there is no thought here of sinless perfection but rather of covenantal obedience. I I think what Hezekiah is doing is what surely we would do. In fact, you and I probably have done it. When we think that we may die, when something happens, we begin to make the case for our salvation through faith. And what he's doing is he's giving testimony of a valid faith supported by the evidence of good works. He's saved, as Calvin put it, he's saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. It's accompanied by and given evidence by good works. That is the only faith that can give us assurance of salvation. He's doing what we will do. He's working out before the Lord his basis for the assurance of salvation. He's, tra- he's lived by faith and he's supporting the evidence of that faith by his life of works. Now what's interesting is that later on, after Hezekiah was healed, he actually made a record that was reflecting on that event and on his prayer. It's found in Isaiah 38 and it includes this line, and this is really the heart of it. After he was spared by the Lord, he writes, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Now this reflection shows what many Christians attest when they were at death's door but survived. Just a few weeks ago, we had Reverend Michael Dixon preaching from this pulpit, and he mentioned that during his COVID, he was told that he was going to die seven days in a row, or at least for a week, he said that's seven days. He was told today you're going to die. He did not die, and he was able to say to us, it wasn't the funnest experience I've ever had, but it was edifying. It was enriching. It was was a, a building event 
for my faith. It made me appreciate more greatly the spiritual blessings I have in Christ. Of course, Hezekiah prayed for the Lord to spare and deliver him. We will do the same when death comes knocking at our door. But we're reminded here that thoughts of death should cause us to think through the matter of our salvation. This is especially true if you cannot say what Hezekiah said. Do you realize that you are going to die? You may die suddenly. It is given a man, the Bible says, once to die and then comes judge it. We need to think through the matter of our salvation. And Hezekiah makes the great statement, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. He's talking about the forgiveness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, whom God would send and has sent. For Hezekiah, the result of this was praise to God for the atonement of his sins. It gave him confidence of eternal life after death whenever it should come. The prophet Isaiah, when we last heard of him, he had delivered the, the, the dire news of impending death to Judah's king. And he quickly departed, it seems, maybe to give Hezekiah space for his prayers and his tears. But no sooner had Isaiah left the chambers where he had gone in to tell Hezekiah he was going to die, the Lord commanded Isaiah to go back in with further news, namely that Hezekiah's prayers had been heard. And so this episode is one of the great instances of supernatural healing in the Old Testament. Isaiah 38, 4-6 Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord of the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend the city. Now you see why the illness and the the invasion are linked together. The solution is offered together. But God informs him that he's heard his prayer and he will extend his life. Now, the chronicler summarizes these events, and he notes that having received Isaiah's good news, the king was still so distressed that he asked Lord, the Lord to give him a sign. There he is on his deathbed. We can assume he was weak. He was suffering in some severe way. He'd been told he's about to die. He had broken down in tears. He prayed for God's mercy through faith. The prophet Isaiah comes back in and says, God's heard your prayer. I will add 15 years to your life. And he, he, he asked him to confirm that promise with a sign. Now the emphasis, there's a lot we could say about that. Let me point out that the emphasis on the text is not whether or not he should have asked for the sign. And by the way, the Lord at many times in Scripture does offer confirmations of his word. The confirmations are not to unbelief but to faith. The weak and wavering faith that does believe but is, but is struggling with unbelief asks the Lord for confirmation, and here at least the Lord provides it. But the chronicler's emphasis is on the grace of God that he was willing to provide it. Now here's Second Kings 20's version of it. Here's where more detail is. It's very interesting. Isaiah said, This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised And then he asked Hezekiah to to make his choice. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? So the sign, there's a sundial in there, in there, in the, in the area where they are. And he says, do you want me to advance the sun 10 marks 
Or do you want me to push it back 10 marks? Now, Hezekiah really wanted a test. He said, let's choose the harder of the two. There might be some explanation if it suddenly seemed to go forward. But if the sun moves backward, well, that's a supernatural thing. And that's what the Lord does. Hezekiah says it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. Rather, let the shadow go back 10 steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord and he brought the shadow back 10 steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. Now that is quite an impressive uh, sign. Now, Now many people would seek to find another way to explain it than that God supernaturally caused the sun. I don't know, somebody would have to tell me whether it's the rotation of the, I suppose it's the rotation of the earth that's being moved, not the sun. Or some will say, no, it's just an optical illusion. I think the inference very clearly is it's a major cosmic event to confirm this one believer's need for a sign. Well, here's the lesson. God answers our prayers. Do we believe that? We should believe that God, go ahead and pray when you're sick, when you're dying. Ask God for a miracle. Now, he's wise. In heaven, we will always be glad that he answered or did not seem to answer in the way that it disposed. But often it will be the case that we appeal to God in prayer and he supernaturally answers it. Meanwhile, we should also look, as Hezekiah was seeking, for signs that God is with us. Often I will find when interacting with a Christian patient who's going through maybe life-threatening illness, maybe is dying, I, I always, as a pastor, I look for signs, tangible signs, that God has been present in the situation. And very often there's a, there's a very unusual circumstance, something that ordinarily wouldn't happen, but it did happen. There's some provision that can't be accounted for, or, or in many ways the Lord acts. And we're able to say we should take this as a reminder that God is with you. You're not alone. This is not just superstitiously grasping for things. This is believing in the providence of God. You will almost always find it. That God is present and he will give you tangible signs. And very often, isn't that all that we need? All that we need is to be reminded and to be confident that God is with me. Moreover, Hezekiah's experience reminds us that we should treasure every day and every blessing Andrew Stewart puts it this way, we are not in this world forever. Our lives are like a mist. All too soon they will end. But God has given us today. For each believer, every day is an opportunity to serve the Lord and every second of it is precious. That is almost uniformly what people say who have been at the brink of death. They realize how precious is the time and the life we have been given. Now, all this fascinating information about Hezekiah's sickness, his prayer, his ask for a sign, his miraculous recovery is mainly background to the main point the chronicler wants to make. And that point is this, that for all of his piety, for all of his remarkable spiritual virtue and heroism, Hezekiah responded sinfully to this experience of receiving God's grace. Verse 25 says, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. And that seems remarkable. Here he's humbled to the point of death. And he's given this message from the, by the prophet. And he prays and the Lord answers his prayer. One would think the response would be gratitude, but in fact, 
It was pride. He had received a superlative spiritual experience, and he gave himself in his heart the credit for it. Well, the result of this was God's wrath in response. Verse 25, therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. Now here we are shown the offense that pride is to God. Here's a man that God had just spared his life. He'd given him a remarkable supernatural sign. But when that same man, actually the the Hebrew text says his heart was lifted up, when he exalted himself inwardly as a result of it, God was angry. Matthew Henry says, Pride is a sin that God hates as much as any, and particularly in his own people. Those who exalt themselves must expect to be abased and put under humbling providences. Now, this is what happened to Hezekiah. Now, the question is raised, what is the judgment? What is the wrath that was the result of this? I think the best argument would be made for the fall of the great fortress of Lachish. If you remember some of the details of the Assyrian invasion of Judah, for quite some time, Sennacherib and his great army were working through the outer fortresses while Hezekiah was preparing the cities and the city of Jerusalem. And the great fortress in the center of Judah was the fortress city of Lachish. In fact, on the memorial stela, the stone erected by the Assyrians to celebrate the victory of Sennacherib, such as it was, What's highlighted is that he conquered this fortress city of Lachish. Hezekiah faltered at that time and he stripped the temple of its gold and he tried to purchase peace from the Assyrian. It seems that the fall of this fortress city was the judgment that was God's wrath for his pride. Isaiah 2 verse 17 reminds us that the haughtiness of man shall be humbled The lofty pride of men shall be brought low, for the Lord alone shall be exalted. We're reminded here that humility offers a better place of blessing. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 57, 15. Now, it is a little embarrassing for Hezekiah to have received this remarkable miracle in the manner it was done and to have become proud, but his virtue was his willingness to repent. Perhaps the key to the Christian life is the willingness to repent, the the tender heart like Josiah had before the Lord. It would be nice to say the key to the Christian life is never to sin. The problem of that is it is what we call an over-realized eschatology, that the ability no more to sin is for the life to come. We are still in that life where we are not only able to sin, in the words of Augustine, we are extremely prone to do so. No, the key to the Christian life is, that we, is not that we should never sin. The key to the Christian life is that we should repent that we should be willing to humble ourselves when we have sinned before the Lord. And this is what he does, verse 26. Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now what's interesting here is we're told that he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem repented of his pride. Does that suggest that Hezekiah publicly confess this sin? 
I think it does. He's the king of the nation. His pride had brought this event. He seems to have confessed it and the spirit of pride that had infected others and the people joined him in humility. God's wrath was averted for another hundred years. In fact, the Assyrians had just destroyed the northern kingdom. God would have destroyed the southern kingdom 120 years before he actually did. But Hezekiah averted it by repenting of his sin of pride and humbling himself before the Lord. Oh, how faithful God is to answer our prayers. We saw in the first part of the sermon, God often answers according to his will. But we should look to him as a a God who heals us. We pray to him, as James said, and he heals the sick. How often that is the case. But God always receives the prayer for humility repentance from pride of heart and he averts his wrath well no doubt the chronicler is recording these events not to show the dirty laundry of great king hezekiah but as a reminder to his own generation remember this book is written 150 some years later the restoration community coming back from babylon and they too had received an instance of grace They had received a miracle, no less than the ones recorded him. The whole business of Cyrus the king, the Persian emperor, issuing the decree for the restoration of Jerusalem. All the events involved in the people of Judah leaving Babylon and going back with financial support to reestablish the city. It was a miracle on the same order. But you see, they needed to humble themselves. They needed to be reminded that they're to trust the Lord. They're to show gratitude and to show it by walking in the ways of the Lord. Well, the final episode from Hezekiah's life likely occurred also around the same time as the Assyrian invasion, probably shortly after 701 BC in that great deliverance. And this is the arrival of emissaries from the upstart kingdom of the city of Babylon. Now, to us today, Babylon, we think of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebopolassar and those sorts of people, but it wasn't that Babylon yet. It's a rising power that might hope to be a counterweight against the terrible Assyrian Empire. The king is a man named Evil Merodach, and he is a rising power, but he is not yet Nebuchadnezzar, and he is not that well known. And we're told the reason that they came, it's very interesting, they came because of the sign that they had learned of. This is verse 31. They had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land. Now, I would argue that the, in, the, in the context of this passage, the sign is the healing of Hezekiah, but particularly the moving of the celestial bodies and the, and the, the moving of, this, of, those, of the sundial back 10 spaces. Now, don't forget that the Assyrians had, a, or the Babylonians worshiped the sun. They were astro, they had, they worshiped astronomy, and therefore they were good at astrology. And it seems clear, by the way, when people say we can't really believe that God changed the rotation of the earth to cause it to go back 10 steps. Well, the Babylonian astronomers seem to have noticed that he did. And so they sent a delegation, envoys from the princes of Babylon, and this is the final episode. Now, to set the stage for this visitation, we're first reminded of the remarkable blessings, the riches and honor that God had bestowed upon Hezekiah. 
Look at verse 27 and 28. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. He made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shield, for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine and oil, stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. Now, if you've been following on in Chronicles, you know that this is what is a normal expectation, when people, particularly when the kings of Judah support him. Some people would make this a basis for the prosperity gospel. If you just trust the Lord, you're going to be wealthy and fabulously rich. Well, you are not a king of Judah and therefore a type of the glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wouldn't count on that. Uh, The Bible tells us that we have many sorrows in this life. But the kings of Judah, holding that office that typified the glorious kingdom of Christ, it is certainly true. Their obedience, our obedience, does lead to blessing in a general way. Theirs led to riches and honor and power. Also impressive achievements. Verse 29, he provided cities for himself, flocks and herds in abundance. The Lord had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon, directed them down to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Well, no wonder he was tempted with pride. This is referring to the great aqueduct. A kilometer through stone. Some of you have been there and have told me. I've actually been in Hezekiah's uh, tunnel outside Jerusalem. And the, the astonishing engineering feat that he did. He had wealth and honor and achievements. And yet, God was still... Here's, notice this. He was, I, I said earlier, he's still a man. He still fears death. He still breaks down in tears when he's told he's going to die. And you know what? He still needs to be growing in his faith. You may be high in life. You may have achieved many things. You may be late in life. And you're able to look with godly satisfaction on God's blessing in your life. He's not done with you. He wants you to be growing spiritually. And so we're told that, this is verse 31 of our passage, and so in the manner, matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Now, little does Hezekiah know it. He gets news one day, by the way, there's a, a caravan from over the desert. It's from a place called Babylon. We've kind of heard of that place. And, and there, there's envoys of princes and all the honors that come in. Little did he know that it was the Lord testing his heart. Now, when we read that the Lord wanted to test him and to know all that was in his heart, it does not mean that God did not know. God does not test you and me to discover because he needs to find out what's in our hearts. No, he wants to know in the sense of he wants to reveal. He tests us to display what is in our heart. And the chief person to whom he wants to display it is to us. Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew Selman says, God tests us in order to refine, to stimulate repentance, and to deepen faith. That's what the Lord does. He, he brings trials. Often we don't even know. This was not a, a seemingly negative thing. It was a test. Matthew Henry says, It is good for us to know ourselves, to know our weakness and sinfulness, that we may not be conceited or self-confident, but rather that we would live in dependence upon divine grace. Now we're told that in order to test Hezekiah, the Lord left him to himself. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is God did not give him a revelation. At key points in his life, it's awfully handy to have the prophet Isaiah, not to mention Micah around, to tell you what God wants you to do. But not this time. 
God did not give a specific revelation of his will. What was Hezekiah to do in this search situation? No, it was a test. He was left to work it out for himself, what he ought to do. By, by the way, we are to consult the Bible. We should be, we, we're to be looking for biblical principles in decision-making. But once those principles have been brought, maybe it's a job opportunity. And maybe there's worldly gain, but spiritual loss. There's a, who, who we marry, choices we're going to make. They are tests. Well, here's, what, here's the question. What should he have done? Here come these emissaries praising him. They were clearly seeking a military arrangement, a diplomatic arrangement. Their enemy is his enemy. That's, they're not there just to, to inquire about things generally. What should he have done? Well, he should have, for instance, shown discretion with these men who were representatives of a little-known pagan power, little known to him. Instead of enthusiastically embracing a worldly alliance, he should have been trusting in God alone. He should have shown discretion and reserve with these emissaries. Second of all, he should have shown humility rather than the boastful spirit that he actually showed when he allowed them to come in and he boastfully showed them all of his treasures, all of his armies, all of his gold, all of his silver. Above all, he should have given glory to God. He should have given testimony that it was all by grace to an unworthy servant, for this was true. Well, Hezekiah fails this test. Isaiah 39.2 tells us he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, that was not wise. In fact, we know that they took note. There's a lot of riches in this city called Jerusalem. And that news went back to Babylon. And there it stayed for decade after decade until uh, there was someone strong enough to do something about it. I Isaiah knew it was a problem. He goes to Hezekiah. He asks them who they were. He tells them. And he asks them, what have they seen in your house? We, we get his drift. You didn't show them everything, did you? Isaiah 39.4. Here was his answer. They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Isaiah 39, 5. Well, Isaiah, actually it's the Lord speaking through Isaiah, brought judgment to Hezekiah because yet again the boastful pride. Here's what he said, Isaiah 39, 6 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, maybe the most embarrassing moment of Hezekiah's entire record is what he responded in Isaiah 39, verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. Now you might say, no, that's really exemplary piety. He's, he's surrendering to the sovereignty of God. Well, we're then told what he was thinking. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. So Isaiah says, because you've done this, the whole city is going to be conquered. Everything's going to be emptied. The princes are going to go off as eunuchs in a, in, in, in a future generation. And Hezekiah says, did you say a future generation? Then it's not my problem. That's actually what he, at least he had the discretion not to say it. 
He only thought it. Here again, we see the pride that follows success. Matthew Henry says, when Hezekiah had destroyed other idolatries, he began to idolize himself. We should loathe the evidence, and it's there, of pride and self-centeredness. Pride makes us self-centered like this. We become only concerned with our own present experience and reputation. Humility will cause us to be concerned for the house of the Lord, for the kingdom of God, for our children and grandchildren and for the church, not to act in a way that places a premium on present uh, experience, but rather that we will think about how our actions will affect the future. Andrew, Andrew Stewart writes, those who suffered most from his sin were his children and his people's children. How often that is true. When we act in pride, we are mortgaging future blessing through, God, through ungodliness so that we can have present gratification. And it's those who follow after who will suffer the most. While Hezekiah was a king who greatly honored the Lord, he acted valiantly in faith. He was richly rewarded by the Lord's faithfulness. And in the end, he was a king who who responded better to adversity than he did to success. That's the kind of person he was. He was great in adversity. And he was proud in success. His faith in adversity saved Judah. His pride in success doomed it. Well, here's the final record. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Maybe the best commentary on Hezekiah's life is the honor he received after he died from the people. He had pointed them to God. His prayers had led to God's salvation. Even his, heart, even his pride warned the people to tend the inner condition of their hearts. If this is true of the best of men, and my friends, Hezekiah is the best of men. Oh, he's a model of faith and courageous prayer. He shows that we need someone not from earth, but from heaven, who is a better king and deliverer. We need a savior whose feet are not made of clay. We need Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe Hezekiah's greatest testimony, given in the fear of death, was a solace that we together with him can gain by trusting that better savior, Jesus Christ. He said, God has cast all my sins behind my back and facing death with tears he was able to have peace listen to hezekiah learn from the the lesson of its foolish pride but gain the assurance he was able to have he looked to that greater savior jesus christ he looked to the atoning blood of his cross he said god has cast my sins behind his back and he was able to have peace let's pray Father in heaven, we thank you for this record of Hezekiah. We thank you for the wisdom it gives to us and cause us, Lord, to profit from the examples of others, particularly those in the Bible. But Father, let us also profit from the example of faith that says our greatest need is to be forgiven and to be right with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.